Okay, so welcome back. And uh, Terry, who sort of asked, uh, sitting up here in front, who sort of started asking something uh, that I suggested we might continue at this point, apparently had to leave. She tells me she had to do some other things. So, I guess we won't be pursuing her questions to start with. Maybe somebody else has some. Yes? Can you talk a little bit more about the aggregate of consciousness? The aggregate of consciousness, yes. So uh, that puts us immediately to continuing the the discussion that we had from last time, which I would like to do. I just before I do that, though, I would like to ask if there are any of the people who haven't been here previously, if, if you have any questions, or uh, do I need to give you a little bit of a, a, a background on what we're talking about here? Uh, yes, you'd like to. So you have other questions? Yeah. A little bit of a background. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So. Um, and as I said, I, I uh, just sort of uh, following the pattern that the Buddha did after his enlightenment when he commenced his teaching. And the first teaching that he gave was on uh, what uh, are commonly referred to now as the Four Noble Truths, which is the, the truth that... Uh, uh, life is, is uh, pervaded with dissatisfactoriness, or some people say the truth that life is suffering, but that's, that's a bit of an oversimplification that is upon the truth. Depths of it and sounds maybe a little bit overly pessimistic, but nevertheless, uh, it's the truth that, uh, that life does have an enormous amount of suffering and that uh, even uh, suffering notwithstanding, there's a whole lot of dissatisfaction in the rest of what makes up life. The second of these noble truths was that the cause of this suffering was craving. And the third is that the cessation of craving would result in the cessation of suffering. And the fourth was the Eightfold Path, which is the path of practice by which a person can achieve the cessation of craving that leads to uh, liberation from suffering. Now, when he presented that teaching, the first part of it, on the truth, what we call the truth of suffering, it's really, uh, it's the truth of dukkha. And dukkha refers to any and every sort of of dissatisfactoriness and, and unpleasantness. And uh, so the, the truth is the truth of dukkha. When he was speaking of the truth of dukkha, as he briefly summarized all the different forms of suffering that there are in life, there is uh, physical dukkha uh, in the form of pain, and there are all the many different forms of mental dukkha, uh, anguish, grief, loss, uh, so many different things like that. He summed it up by saying that, uh, in short, uh, the clinging to the five aggregates is suffering. Or the five aggregates of clinging. And then, okay, so this was the basis. Then, uh, in his second teaching after that, uh, this teaching is about non-self. And here is where we find out more about these uh, five aggregates and where they fit in with this uh, teaching as a whole. So the reason that we are unhappy ever is that uh, is this craving that's being referred to. Desire to have things that we don't have. And 
aversion to those things which we don't like and which cause us uh, uh, un- unpleasant, uh, which are unpleasant to us. So craving uh, encompasses both the wish to have those things which are pleasant and pleasing to us and the wish to be free of those things which are, are unpleasant to us. But then the point is made that, the, you know, and, and, and at this point it's worth reflecting for yourself that it's fine to say that if I didn't have craving that I wouldn't experience unhappiness anymore. But how, how do you even begin to eliminate uh, the desire for pleasure and the aversion to pain. How do you overcome that and come to a state of, uh, uh, of uh, freedom from craving? And the point is made that this is only possible when you have overcome the uh, the the root that sustains craving, desire, and aversion function on the basis of there being a separate self and there being a boundary distinction between what is me, what I am, and the rest of the universe. And so uh, then there is this constant struggle at this boundary because I want to have those things which produce uh, pleasantness and I want to avoid those things that produce pain. So to eliminate craving means that we have to overcome the ignorance, the delusion that is at the root of it. And the delusion, the particular delusion referred to is the belief, is this belief in a self that we have. This is, this is anatta or the doctrine of no self. And this is completely contrary to ordinary experience and our ordinary wishes and desires. Uh, we are concerned with, uh, we cherish the self very much. Uh, we are concerned with taking care of the self, making the self stronger, gratifying the self. Uh, we would like the self to be immortal. We fear the uh, destruction of the self uh, at death. Uh, we cling to the notion that this self might somehow continue after death. So uh, our normal experience is that of being a very real self. And so the idea that the self is an illusion is a very startling idea. As a matter of fact, this you know, what made the Buddha such a unique teacher and what caused this uh, set of teachings that we call Buddhism to, to uh, spread, to persist, and actually be expanded and elaborated on uh, over all of the intervening centuries. Um, it is a very special teaching, but the, the most significant thing that the Buddha discovered and that he taught is that this self is an illusion. And not only is it an illusion, it's clinging to that illusion that is the cause of all our problems. Because because we cling to that illusion and because we act out of that illusion through desire and aversion or greed and hatred, we enormously increase the amount of suffering that there is in the world unnecessarily over and beyond what is inevitable what is the inevitable pain that's associated with being in this kind of a body in this kind of a world so we increase it due to uh, due to our clinging to the illusion of self and acting out of uh, greed and hatred, desire and aversion, craving in all of its forms, and therefore increase everyone's suffering. But it's also the cause of our own suffering. Because when you examine suffering, dissatisfaction, happiness, what you find 
is that you are experiencing it because you uh, you crave things to be different than the way they are. It's a place of non-acceptance. But anyway, in terms of how do we follow this path to freeing ourselves from this innate tendency to craving, and we find that the answer is by uh, penetrating the illusion of self that we are clinging to so strongly. So in this second teaching on not-self, what the Buddha did is point out that these five categories, or five constituent elements, if we look at a literal translation of the original terminology he used, uh, they are five collections of constituent elements. And so you as an individual, what he's saying is that you as an individual are made up of five constituent elements, which in their, in their aggregate, uh, make up everything that you experience yourself to be and everything that you think you are and, and your entire life experience. And then he invites us to, first of all, you know, nothing's to be accepted on faith. So first of all, what we need to do is to, uh, is to convince ourselves that indeed these five uh, uh, aggregates do encompass everything that we uh, have ever directly experienced and that we can know as being ourself as an individual. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is having satisfied ourselves that indeed everything that we are is included in these five aggregates. Then to satisfy ourselves that the self that we have believed in is nowhere amongst those. It's neither something in addition to that, nor is it it in that. It is an illusion. An important thing to understand is that an illusion, when we say something's an illusion, we're not just simply saying that something doesn't exist. You know, if I say... or doesn't matter, matter the example. If I say something's an illusion, what doesn't exist is what I believe it to be. It doesn't exist in the way it appears to me. It doesn't exist in the way I understand and believe and accept it to be. It's not saying, it's, it's not negating absolutely the existence of that thing, but it's saying that uh, it, is, it is other than what it appears to be. So, this self, interestingly enough, when you look for it, you cannot find it. When you examine it rationally and logically, you find that it's an, it's an impossibility. Now, it goes beyond that. The, the way that we ordinarily perceive the world is is as a self, but as a self in a universe of objects which we uh, perceive as each having their own self-nature as well. So we perceive ourselves as, as a self in a universe of objects which are another kind of self, that are ourselves in their own right. And um, this, too, is an illusion. So what we're being invited to do is to investigate and discover the true nature of who and what we are and the true nature of the universe. Uh, In other words, the true nature of the reality that... uh, that we find ourselves in. 
And so the five aggregates are a tool for doing that. They're a tool for this investigation. Any questions about that? Could you list the five aggregates again? What's that? Could you list five? Yes. The five aggregates uh, are, first of all, is the, the aggregate is uh, usually referred to as aggregate of form. And uh, that's a translation of the word rupa, uh, which can be taken to mean materiality or physicality. Okay? So in terms, if, if we were saying, if, if, if we're looking at the aggregate of rupa, or the aggregate of form as it applies to this is what an individual is, it would be the material aspect of what we are. Then, in addition to that, the other four ag- aggregates are all mental in nature, they're non-material. And these are the aggregate of feeling, of which there are uh, basically three types of feeling, pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But practically, and this is an important thing, when we examine pleasantness, unpleasantness, we find that there is pleasantness and unpleasantness that uh, arises from the physical, and then there is the pleasantness and unpleasantness that arises uh, from the mental. So there's really five kinds of feeling. There's there's, uh, mental unpleasantness and there's physical unpleasantness, there's mental pleasantness and there's physical pleasantness, and then there's neutral feeling. So feeling is, associ- is, is feeling is one of the aggregates that's associated. Uh, now, uh, the second, there are the other three uh, mental aggregates are consciousness, perception, and what are called mental formations. Uh, mental formations, is the aggregate of all of the thoughts and ideas and emotions and intentions uh, and memories that are uh, the the mental formations, mental constructs that uh, are that part of our uh, individuality. The perception of consciousness is what takes uh, either sensations or mental objects uh, as, as object to be known. Perception is the way, uh, the way in which they are known. It turns out that our perceptions depend upon our mental formations. So that when you hear a sound, you have the perception of a car driving down the street. So that's the result of your mental formations, your, your previous experiences, your memories, uh, your concepts and ideas and so forth that interpret the raw sensory information and there arises a perception of the sound. But every everything that you see and hear and experience in any way is a perception. And that percept the nature of that perception is determined by mental formations. So that's the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Okay. Other questions about what talked about so far? What is so profound about this teaching and so difficult to, to grasp because it is so different than the way we normally perceive things is the notion that all of those things that we hold to be, that we normally hold to be solid and real and self-existent are we're being told that they are illusions. And it, it takes it takes some intellectual work to understand what is meant by that, and then it takes some much more practical work in uh, meditation to verify uh, directly, experientially, the truth of those things that uh, we can begin to grasp in an intellectual way. And. And part of it is that what happened 
happens as a result of the end of the process is we acquire a certain kind of wisdom, not an intellectual understanding, but wisdom in, in a most profound sense of the direct knowing. The effect that that has on us as the individuals consisting of the five aggregates that we are is that once we've acquired that wisdom, our perceptions are profoundly different, and this leads to our actions being profoundly different. One of the important aspects of our perceptions being different is we no longer believe in self in the way that we had previously, and so we no longer experience craving in the way that we had previously, and so we are no longer subject to suffering in the way that we were before. The other effect of this wisdom that keeps us from attaching to the belief in ourself and in the uh, self-existing nature of the things around us, uh, and therefore the elimination of craving, is that it dramatically changes the motivations for our behaviors, and so that we're no longer inclined to behave uh, acting out of uh, desire and aversion. But beyond that, this wisdom instills in us an understanding of our nature to everything else that is, and in particularly uh, other sentient beings, so that our response to other sentient beings uh, comes not from a place of selfishness and conflict, but a place from compassion and love and kindness. So, so this is where we're trying to go. But this was, the teaching was, okay, start by examining these five aggregates and see if you can discover this truth that self is an illusion. And so your question was to say more about the aggregate of consciousness. So, and, and that's an important one because, you know, most modern human beings, I think this may have been less true in the past, and it seems to be less true in children, young people, but most modern adult human beings find it quite easy to agree that, well, I am not my body. Is there anybody here that isn't pretty comfortable with that idea? You may be very attached to your body, but in terms of the identification of who you truly are, is there anyone here that feels like, uh, you know, and, and there's, there's nothing wrong with it. All of what we talk about, you feeling like you are, is an illusion. But, so, but I, I, nowadays, people have every part of their body, it seems, well, not every part, but many parts of their body can be transplanted, right? So, uh, and, and, and most of us are, are somewhat educated in the biological and life sciences, and so forth. It's, easy, it's easiest for uh, us to understand that we are not a body. We do really feel, we tend to feel like we are our mind, though. Right? Don't you feel like we are your mind? And that you think you are your mind. And it seems like you are your mind. So, uh, we need to... Yes? No, I was wondering, which aggregate does the mind itself fall under? Well, all, uh, there are four. The mind is... Uh, there are four aggregates that are mental in nature. And so the mind is that combination of mental formations, perceptions, feeling, and consciousness. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the mind. Okay. Now, we look at those, and we can, you know, your feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness, it's, it's interesting how powerful they are, and how direct and raw sort of is the, the, uh, the nature of those when you examine them. When there is pain, it is very much your pain. Right? 
there's very strong identification with it. But on the other hand, you probably don't you you don't intellectually think to yourself, well, I am my pleasure and pain, do you? But you feel as though there is a self that experiences that pleasure and pain. And so that, in a sense, that pleasure and pain belongs to. It's, it's mine. Okay, so if you examine your reaction to pain intellectually, then you'll discover that, yes, whatever it is that I really think I am, it's something other than the pain itself, because that my, myself appropriates the pain or the pleasure. So uh, it's more likely we, we appropriate the pleasure voluntarily. <laughs> and uh, uh, we, we are subject to the pain uh, involuntarily. But whereas we experience it as ours, and part of the mistake that we make is we identify with it. And so when we identify with the pleasure or pain, then uh, that enormously limits the ways in which we can deal with it. Because that's the other thing about the self. The self does things to what is other than self, right? Isn't yourself a doer and a manipulator, a controller, a chooser, an adder to and a taker away, and so on and so forth? And so when you when you examine feelings, of course, the important thing you discover is, no, that's not where the sense of self is. The self seems to be that which possesses the pain and experiences the pain. But also, if you examine it carefully, you find a useful piece of information that if you allow yourself to identify, your, your mind to identify self and pain, it greatly eliminates this ability of the perceived self to manipulate the pleasure and pain, right? That might be useful in other ways later on. Our perceptions. If we if we examine the meaning of this, that um, what what I perceive, what each of us perceives is determined by our mental formations. So uh, it's a representation of reality that arises in our mind. It's a representation of whatever part of uh, the supposed universe that we focus our attention on in the moment. And we can, with some reflection and examination, uh, satisfy ourselves to the truth of this, that anything, any perception I have, the nature of that perception is determined by all of the mental formations that I bring to the act of perception. Is there anybody that maybe is not certain about that and would like to have that, needs to have that explored more deeply? I think it's something that probably most of us have already thought about enough and observed enough that it's, it's, it's reasonably clear, but I want to make sure this. We may, you know, the more, the more you explore and investigate that, the more revealing that it becomes. Uh, the average person on the street who's never given a tremendous amount of thought to these things, either can immediately grasp or fairly quickly grasp the degree to which their previous experiences, uh, etc., determine their perceptions. But if we pursue this further, we realize that our entire life, our entire reality, everything that we experience all of the time is perception. We live in a world of our own perceptions, and therefore, we live in a world that is not out there, but rather it's in here. And the world, that, and that's why different people 
and have such dramatically different experiences is because we each live in our own reality, which is a projection of our own minds. Okay? So we look in that and we don't find the self, but now we're starting to feel, you know, like, okay, the self is experiencing those perceptions, right? Just like the self experienced feelings. So the self is something separate from the perceptions. The perceptions are something that happened to the self. There's, you know, the ghost in the machine. The perceptions are projections on, you know, inside your head there's a screen maybe, and the real self is sitting in a comfy armchair watching whatever perceptions get uh, projected there. So now you've figured out that, aha, things aren't necessarily exactly the way they're projected there. But I'm still me sitting in my chair looking at the screen with the perception. See, so the sense of self is still there. So we've got to look a little farther and see if we can find it. Now, what is most uniquely you about these mental formations are about these uh, five aggregates is the mental formations. What makes me different from you is I have a completely different set of mental formations. Right? Every one of us, from the time we were born and perhaps sometime before that, we have been having experiences. And we have our, our mind has constructed, uh, has, has created constructs, mental constructs, mental formations out of those experiences. And then, of course, uh, when we learn to communicate with other minds through speaking and reading, of course, we also took on a whole lot of other mental constructs that we didn't make ourselves, but we incorporated them into our growing collection of mental constructs. So we have this collection of mental formations that functions to interpret and experience, and that gives rise to the perception we have and the feelings we have. And then from that, may arise emotions, and from that may arise craving, and from that may arise intentions to carry out particular actions. And these, in fact, are all mental formations as well. The volition to perform an action in response to an experience arising is a new mental formation, right? Are you with me on that? And that new mental formation, that volition that arises now, is conditioned by all the mental formations that we brought with us into the experience of the moment. But once it's been generated, it becomes a part of them. And it's not an independent part of them, they're all interconnected or at least it's obviously interconnected with all of those things which uh, we're directly involved in in conditioning it. So it's going to be a part of our our future experience as well. So you might say, oh, this mass of mental formations, yeah, this this is the self. This is me. And of course, yes, when I felt like my mind was myself, that's what I was feeling like was myself. That's who I, that's my personality. Yeah, that's the kind of guy I am, you know. That's, that's who likes some things and doesn't like these other things. That's who uh, has these particular characteristics that my, my friends all know me. They know I am this person that is this way, right? So our mental formula, that must be it, right? Except even when you examine that, does it really sound right or does it sound it's still not quite right? And well, why isn't it? Well, 
For one thing, all these mental formations, I mean, they're just, they, they're that. They're constructions made by the mind. Uh, they're conditioned. They're constantly changing. You know, and if we examine the self-nature in those mental formations, we see that uh, this is what we call personality, really. If we examine the person that we are based on the personality, and we're honest with ourselves, are we the same person in every circumstance? In the course of a single day, are we even the same person uh, when we're at work as we are with uh, our family in the evening? We're not. As a matter of fact, Anybody who has had the opportunity of living closely with another person and getting to know them knows that they're one person with me and we're by ourselves and we're arguing about things. But when the phone rings and it's somebody else, there's a whole different person that comes out, right? Different parties or with family or with children. And it's true of all of us. And we know this about our partners and we accept it. We know this about ourselves and we accept it. We're hardly aware ourselves of the shifts in personality that we undergo all of the time. And if we're very close to our partner, we get really used to that. We get used to the fact that they're one person with me and then another person with all these people and there's still another person when they get a little parent. And we just take it for granted. So personality is very, you know, it, it's very nebulous. It doesn't have a, it doesn't have permanence either. Are you the same? Are any of those persons that make you up the same as they were at some time in the past? Nor will they be the same in the future. The more you examine personality, the more you find that it's something that's almost made up on the spur of the moment, constantly changing. It's a construct. Uh, so it arises due to causes and conditions. It doesn't really have the kind of essence and self-nature that we know that we are. You know, that sense of me, I am more than just my personality. Right? That's the way we do. So we have to keep looking for where that is. And if we move to the um, aggregate of consciousnesses, this is one that we can very easily and quickly persuade ourselves. You know, we can, even before we examine it, say, oh, this is going to be it. You know, consciousness, yeah, right. I'm the one that experiences everything, right? Yeah, consciousness. So... I'm conscious, I'm conscious of this, I experience it, I'm conscious of that. Yeah, 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 consciousness, okay. Oh, and I'm the one that does that, too. So I consciously decide. I'm the decider, you know. I'm George Bush. I'm the decider. Yeah, okay, so here we are getting to something here. where uh, this, this must be where I'm going to find myself. Now, when we examine consciousness... Carefully here, and we, you know, like with all of this, we want to distinguish between what we want to believe and what we feel, and what's actually there. So, examine consciousness. Now, uh, Buddha gave us a clue. He said, when you go to examine consciousness, what you're going to find is you're going to find that it comes in six different kinds that are distinct from each other and that are not. You know, you, you, you can't even mix them. So there's visual consciousness. The consciousness you have of visual object. And there's the consciousness you have of auditory object. There's also uh, gustatory and olfactory and the consciousness of the uh, tactile, well, body sense consciousness. And the sixth is the consciousness we have of, of mental object. So let's go back to visual consciousness and auditory consciousness because it, we can really quickly satisfy ourselves that the consciousness of sound and the consciousness of things we see, they're really different, aren't they? Now, and is there visual consciousness without an object of 
uh, without a visual object? Or is there auditory consciousness without an auditory object? Really? I mean, I, I close my eyes and I meditate here and there's nothing there, you know. There's no visual object. Uh, well, actually there is, isn't there? sort of darkness maybe with a sort of reddish cast to it or like I don't know what it looks like to you but to me it's a little bit like a, a, a dark version of TV snow except that the speckles are, are, are red instead of gray you know? but yeah I'm seeing that and, but when you examine this you find that although there is an idea, you can have an idea of consciousness without an object. When you start looking, it's very, very difficult to find that. You keep, you keep finding that the, if there's consciousness, there's an object of consciousness. And when there's not a sense object of consciousness, then there's a mind object of consciousness. You can have mental images. And so when you start doing this exploration, you may have an experience of saying, well, no, the, all those Buddhist guys are, 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 are wrong because there's, there's, I can have visual consciousness uh, without an object of consciousness. But if you look carefully, that's not really visual consciousness. That is, if you're conscious, you're being, there is an object of consciousness, and it's a mental object. So we experience consciousness always with some kind of an object. And so we look at this and say, okay, is this what I really am? Uh, we look at consciousness in some other ways, too. I know what it's like for me to be conscious of pain. And I can imagine what it's like for somebody else to be conscious of pain. And when I do that, it's hard to find anything, to, any way to discriminate that my consciousness of pain is different than somebody else's. I, you know, of course, if, if we're both hurting at the same time, my consciousness of pain may be a little stronger or less stronger than theirs, or it may be qualitatively different in some way. But then so is my own consciousness of pain at different times. So that consciousness, while it seems to be really closely related to this sense of I, who am the experiencer, it's also lost all of this uniqueness that I feel like belongs to I and me. Yes? You know, um, there are three words and they seem to be used interchangeably. One is consciousness, one is awareness, and the other one is mindfulness. Are they all synonymous? No, they are absolutely not synonymous. Uh, They get mishmash together terribly there you know I haven't been able to find any clear universally agreed upon uh, definitions that would clearly distinguish between awareness and consciousness in English so in English they're often used interchangeably but I have co-opted awareness to mean that which registers on the mind or on the nervous system, and consciousness to me, that uh, uniquely subjective experience of directly knowing that we have. Okay? And so I do this because in our experience, we can be aware of something, but only weakly conscious of it. Or we can be aware of something and be intensely conscious of it. So I needed a vocabulary to talk about to, to, about these differences, but uh, this is something that I've done. And the way we use them in English, they aren't clearly uh, discriminated, and it can be confusing when they're used at different times in different ways. 
the word mindfulness, really what it refers to in, uh, and, and here we've got the way mindfulness might be used ordinarily as part of the English language and the way that you hear mindfulness used in the context of meditation practice in Buddhism. When we're speaking in the context of meditation practice in Buddhism, mindfulness is a, is a translation of a particular word. What that word refers to is what I've been trying to find a way to describe adequately in English, and I have settled on fully conscious awareness, or, or what's called mindfulness is conscious awareness. And you can, your mindfulness can become more and more powerful and, more and stronger and stronger. So uh, I would say that, that uh, the power of mindfulness corresponds to a more fully conscious awareness of whatever is the object of uh, consciousness in the moment, fully conscious awareness of it. And I think that the different people that you'll hear using these words are also trying to say the same things that I am. And so we, there's this tendency to uh, to settle on the word mindfulness, and many meditation teachers will be mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. And it comes to be this very special, wonderful thing. Well, it is a very special, wonderful thing. But what it is, is fully conscious awareness. Uh, put in other words, it's, it's total presence. Uh, it's uh, well, all, all of these other things that go along with it. And so it takes on this very special connotation. But they don't mean exactly the same thing, and they're used in different ways at different times. It can be confusing. <clears throat> also, that the more fully conscious you are of something, the more likely you are to remember it. Would you agree with that? If you are aware of something, but only weakly conscious of it, uh, for example, a fly lands on your arm and then it flies away. If I wait 10 minutes before I say, hey, you know that fly that landed on your arm? You know, I say, what fly that landed on my arm? But, because it has faded from your memory. You know, but if I said that two minutes afterwards, you'd say, oh yeah, what about it? Or something, anything that we're more fully conscious of, we're more likely to remember. So, uh, Mindfulness also is related to memory. The more mindful we are of something, the more likely we are to remember it. But then the other side of that is that we talk about mindfulness, practicing mindfulness, practicing being fully conscious in your awareness. But the only way to do that is to remember to do that rather than forget and get distracted and do something else instead. Likewise in meditation, be mindful of the breath. But what's going to happen is you're going to tend to forget to be mindful of the breath. And so mindfulness, and so mindfulness also is carrying with it this auxiliary connotation of remembering to have it. <laughs> so that means a lot of different things. It doesn't mean exactly the same thing as consciousness and awareness. And this relates a little bit to the discussion we had before we meditated, which was that uh, there is a technical language and there's a lot of advantages to having a precise and technical language to talk about these things, even if it is dry. Anyway, going back to consciousness as an aggregate. So uh, the next thing that you might want to do is to be practice being consciously aware of instances of consciousness as they come and go. Does that make sense what I said to you? Okay, good. It's a really important thing we do with meditation. So you do that then with the objective of seeing if you can locate the self in any of those acts of consciousness. So you hear something and you see, 
Is there a self? See if you can find the hearer. There is the heard and the hearing, but can you find the hearer? There's the seen and the seeing, but can you find the seer behind the seeing? Also, the other thing that we associate with consciousness is conscious intention. Uh, we, we believe that we generate, consciously generate intention and make decisions. And so it's looking to see in any intentional act, there is the intention and then there is the act that flows out of the intention. But look to see, can you find the intender behind the intention? And you have to look, because your first, if you've never looked, most likely your first thought is going to be, oh, okay, yeah, I know the intention. That's going to be easy to find. But when you look, you're going to find, you're going to, well, I shouldn't tell you what you're going to find, should I? You don't look. <laughs> you can find that intender that you're expecting to be there. If there's no intender, then what you're going to find is an intention arises. And you can be conscious of the intention. It's a mental object. It's a mental formation, but it comes out just of nowhere. There's that intention, and you're knowing it. And if you pay attention what you'll see is very often an intention arises and it's taken as an object of consciousness and then afterwards comes this idea of oh, I decided and if you and you, you might even find that that illusion of I as the decider can make up all kinds of story about how you decided but if you're honest with yourself and you really look it's just the intention. I love doing this, and I recommend it highly. If you don't eat in restaurants, go to a restaurant just so you get to choose something on the menu. It's wonderful. Here you are. You're, you, you, and it's already been decided that you're going to order something from the menu. But what? You know, and the thoughts that come. You know, and you might find, you know, if, if it's me, there will be some thought associated with the cost of it. I mean, whether I'm paying for it or whether somebody else is, you know, somebody else is treating me at lunch, you know, I don't want to, or maybe I want to wait and see what they order first before I look at that side of the menu. But. <laughs> and then there's, there's uh, oh, I really like that. That's one of my favorite things. You know? Or then there's the thought of, uh, oh, well, uh, but the ingredients in this, they're not really good for me. There's a lot of fat. <laughs> Or something else is, oh, I really like that. When it's made well, it's so often it's not done right. You know? It's like a well-done chili vino. It's just, hmm. but hardly anybody does chili vino so like I like that. <laughs> that sort of thing. So you find all these thoughts. But watch to see, watch to see the actual, see if you can catch the actual decider. See if, is there a self that is bringing these considerations up? And is there a self that is going to make the decision based on it? It's, it's a really good opportunity to, to observe, you know, to make this observation and see if you can locate and discover the self. Yeah. That brings up the practical question of when do you do this? Um, you're describing doing this in real conscious alert daily life. Yes. Do you also do it in meditation? You also do it in meditation. That's where you learn to do it and that's where you acquire the skill. Uh, so we'll, let's talk some nuts and bolts meditation. You sit down and you say, I am going to observe the sensations of my breath, tip of the nose with great detail. And so, mm, there they are, beginning, sensation again, pause, beginning, and so forth. If you if you become really immersed in following the sensations of the breath, what 
you what every meditator early in their career will will experience, and, and actually takes quite a bit of meditation before this isn't a common experience. Here you are immersed and following these sensations as they unfold, and really all of a sudden you're somewhere else. And you've been somewhere else for a little while. Might have been five seconds or it might have been five minutes. You know, how did that happen? But what will happen is that you can learn to observe yourself as you're observing the meditation object. In other words, uh, I'm using the word self, but uh, your mind is conscious of the sensations of the breath and following them. But at the same time, there's kind of a higher level, a higher order awareness that knows that you're still with the breath. And after you've been practicing for a while, that higher level awareness will alert you when the quality of the awareness of the breath is becoming diffuse and it's losing its clarity. Or you'll become aware that some other thought in your mind is strongly competing with the awareness of the breath so that you're, you're sort of sharing that awareness. I think everybody in the room has had that experience. Haven't you? Right? Isn't that how you eventually learn to stay completely focused with the breath is because you're exercising a higher order of conscious awareness that knows the mental state and detects when either dullness or distraction is starting to cause the awareness to to be lost. this could truly be referred to as a higher state of consciousness. <laughs> and at first, you know, it's difficult to have that. We find that, well, if I try to watch myself watching the breath, I'm not really watching the breath. So all I can do is kind of check in every now and then, make sure that, I haven't, that I'm not beginning to lose it, that I'm not sinking into dullness, or that I'm not actually paying more attention to something else than I want to do. But if you keep doing that in your meditation after a while, it becomes really natural to know what your mind is doing as your mind is doing its meditation thing. I call that introspective awareness, introspective mindful awareness. It is exactly the same mindful awareness that allows you to... uh, that gets stronger and stronger and allows you to take the sensations of the in and out breath that at first were sort of vague and rapidly flowing and very difficult to very difficult to capture. And as it be, as that mindful awareness became stronger and stronger, it allowed you to to easily uh, grasp all the subtleties of the in breath as they unfolded before your your uh, mental eye and to note the end of the in-breath and the duration of the pause and the beginning. It's that same mindful awareness. As it becomes stronger and stronger and more powerful, it can be exercised on these two levels simultaneously. And this is the introspective mindful awareness that you would like to exercise in your daily life. So your mind is doing its thing about deciding what to have for supper. But you're watching it, and at the same time. And and not only are are you watching it, but you can be watching it with a specific objective in mind as to, well, where is the self in this? Where is the decider? And then you can continue it into the eating, so that as you uh, see your dish delivered in front of you, and as you begin to, to taste it and chew it and swallow it, you can look, where is the self that's experiencing this? Where is the self that's gratified because indeed this is one of those rare places that really knows how to make a chili bean? <laughs> but what, it's, what, we're, what we're talking about here is that, that inner 
that exploration of the inner reality and in specific uh, specifically in uh, pursuit of this elusive self that we started out so confident so absolutely certain that was not only there but kind of occupied most of the space in, inside here and but the more we look for it the more the harder it comes to my first uh, meditation teacher used to like to read uh, uh, C.S. Lewis of The Hunting of the Snark. <laughs> and he called meditation snark hunting. It took me a long time to figure out what's he talking about. Oh, yes, okay. Snark hunting. Go snark hunting. But with regard to the aggregate of consciousness, if you can accept it at face value that there are six kinds of consciousness and that each is characterized by its object and that they are indeed distinct from each other, then investigate and satisfy yourself that this is true. And then, having having done that, satisfy yourself that the consciousness uh, it, it's only present with an object. So it arises with an object, and it disappears with the object as a new object of consciousness arises. In that investigation, you are highly likely if if, if you're doing this in in meditation, and if your concentration is good you are highly likely to discover gaps in consciousness. This has been discovered over and over again by many, many people in meditation. Um, that there are gaps in consciousness. You only need to meditate on the arising and passing away of the individual instances of consciousness to discover that, those, that, that there are gaps. And the other thing, let me just finish, the other things to look for is to see, is there anything about this consciousness that is uniquely you? And the other thing is, of course, to see, is there any self that is where the consciousness resides? Or is there just consciousness in the object that is that? Yes? I was just wondering, is consciousness present during dreamless sleep or during dreams? Or is it only during a waking state? No, there is a kind of consciousness that, well, definitely consciousness is is present in dreams. Uh, uh, But often we can't remember the objects of consciousness, but we remember that we had a dream. But there is also a kind of consciousness that's present in the deep stages of sleep as well which uh, we, in the deep stages of sleep, the, uh, the, uh, even the short-term memory is, is not functioning. And so you, know, the, you can't remember any objects of consciousness there. But there is a kind of consciousness present. With gaps between it too? What's that? Are the gaps there too? Uh, the gaps must be there too. I can't say it right I, I know that there is consciousness in dreamless sleep, but I, uh, I, I'm, I'm not enough of a yogi to tell you whether there's gaps in consciousness in dreamless sleep. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the text called the, uh, the Abhidharma would tell us that indeed there are the gaps. But, uh, there are gaps there that during the sleep there are individual moments of consciousness. Although that that is not has not been a universally accepted uh, understanding. So okay, well it is I've already gone over time a little bit, and as you know, I'm happy to go over time more if you want me to. But um, you may have put off your suppers and sat here so long that uh, you don't want to do that. I don't want to 
end the evening, though, without giving everyone a chance to ask any last question or to explore this uh, more deeply in any particular way. This this search for the self that we believed in is it's it's a very important thing. And the if the end of the search were to discover that well, what can you imagine as the ends of the search? If you, you, you are either going to discover the self that you always believed in, or you're going to discover that there's nothing there at all, right? Or you're going to discover that, and I'm not sure what nothing there at all means. Maybe that means that nothing really exists. Or you're going to discover that there is something there, but it's nothing at all like what you thought it was. So those are, those are the possibilities. And you pushed your, and you carried your research uh, right as, as far as it would go. And the five aggregates are, they're merely a tool for doing this. There's actually other tools for doing the same thing. Any questions? Comments? So what did you have for dinner? <laughs> I had a taco. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even offer chili or anything. I actually wasn't even thinking about what I had for supper when I used that. <laughs> I can see how it might sound like reflections on <laughs> reflections on my supper. I'd like to make an announcement that um, everybody uh, is, of course, very welcome to come to Sunday meditation at Bush Stronghold. I might have uh, a little advertisement that it's much cooler there. Great, lovely. And I, I have another announcement. During the summer, when I'm coming only every second Thursday, uh, I have asked uh, Brian, also known as Kelvin, uh, if he would be willing to come on the Thursdays in between and teach meditation and lead the, a sit on Thursday night. Uh, 